0: And oxen for him, and for the people who were with him, and induced him to go up against Rameth Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me to Rameth Gilead? He answered him, I am as you are, my people as your people, we will be with you in the war. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, four hundred men, and said to them, Shall we go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for God will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. Micaiah, the son of Imla. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imla. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes. And they were sitting at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Canaanah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramath-Gilead and triumph, the Lord will give it into the hand of the king." And the messenger, who went to summon Micaiah, said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them, and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what my God says, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or, or shall I refrain? And he answered, Go up and triumph. They will be given into your hand. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Canaan, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Which way did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, You shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him with meager rations of bread and water until I return in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear, all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself, and they went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the captains of his chariots, Fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. As soon as the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. For as soon as the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day. And the king of Israel was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until evening. Then at sunset he died. Now this is the word of the Lord. And additionally, we we subscribe to broadly the Reformed Confession. And we can look many places for uh, the doctrine of providence. We could look to Lord's Day 10 of the catechism for those comforting words. We could look to the Westminster system. But I'd like to point you to the 13th article of the Belgic Confession for these words, uh, a faithful interpretation, we would say, of Scripture. Subservient to Scripture, but faithful nonetheless. And so Article 13 of the Belgic Confession regarding the doctrine of God's providence reads... We believe that this good God, after he had created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will, in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. Yet God is not the author of, nor can he be charged with, the sin that occurs, for his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God, which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples, so as to learn only what he shows us in his word, without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under His control, so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. For that reason, we reject the damnable error of the Epicureans who say that God involves himself in nothing and leaves everything to chance. Let's pray together. O oh God most high, we thank you for this ancient story, this story of your people. We thank you for this window that you give us into your throne room, and all providence which is dispensed from there. Lord, may this be a comfort to all of us here today, or to those who are grieving, or to those whose world has been disrupted, even turned upside down. For those who are confused by all of the chatter. All of the misinformation that is out in the world, Lord. May this word be a haven for us. And Lord, we thank you for the reformed confession. And we pray that that by the power of your spirit and and through the, the foolishness of preaching, as the apostle calls it. That you might make our confession real and true. And so by your spirit. Through your word, and through your servant, Lord, we pray that, that you would minister through the spoken word, and that you would be glorified, that we would be taught, and that your kingdom would increase. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, most people younger than me probably don't remember the career of Johnny Carson, He entertained America midweek for 30 years after the late evening news. Now, in one of his most famous skits, he would read actual classified advertisements in newspapers from around the country. Perhaps you heard him read this one live, or you have heard it since. Lost dog. Brown fur. Some of which is missing, though, due to a case of mange. Blind in one eye, mostly deaf, three-legged and lame due to a recent traffic accident, slightly arthritic, goes by the name of lucky. (laughs) Now people in our world often refer to a concept that they call luck. Random and fortuitous events which are chalked up to dumb luck because no other explanation seems plausible. Now the Bible, the word of God, it it never speaks of luck. Instead, the Bible consistently describes the ordering and outcome of events as being under the specific and deliberate purview of Almighty God. Whether positively blessed events, seemingly disastrous events even those difficult-to-explain events that from a human perspective might be deemed downright lucky, lucky events. Well, there is little doubt that on the day that is described in in the end of our text, chapter 18 of 2 Chronicles, that somebody on that battlefield that day would have used the term lucky shot to describe the archer's arrow which penetrated King Ahab's armor and brought about his death. But the text arrives at this climactic death with a deliberate buildup in the narrative, which reveals something far more significant than just dumb luck. What our confession details in the statement that nothing happens in this world without God's appointment. His providence... Well, let's begin with a bit of a refresher on the context for for those who perhaps haven't looked to the chronicler for a while. At the time, the kingdom of Israel has been divided, divided for 50 years since Solomon's death and the rebellion of the 10 northern tribes, a secession which made Jeroboam king of Israel in that day. Now, the other two tribes are, are Judah and Benjamin. And they were united in the south as the kingdom of Judah. And Judah was, of course, the true monarchy. David had been of Judah. And the Lord had said to David that your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now we, of course, in hindsight, recognize that this is, this is a Messianic prophecy. But the northern kingdom was was founded in rebellion and and was characterized by wickedness during much of its history. And of course there is a a spiritual reality here that that divisions, sad divisions, do exist between God's people. Particularly when there is a rebellion or or when there is a a man-centeredness. But when we come to 2 Chronicles 18, the reprobate king Ahab, And his exceedingly wicked wife, Jezebel, are reigning over the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom is ruled by Jehoshaphat, the great, great, great grandson of David. And Jehoshaphat, he feared the Lord. He combated idol worship in his kingdom and ensured that the law of God was taught. He was a man whom the Lord had prospered, as we read in the very first verse, With wealth, with herds, fortresses, and soldiers. However, Jehoshaphat was not perfect. He had arranged for a a political marriage of one of his seven sons to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And and this is a marriage that, that would spell much disaster for the kingdom in the coming years. This political marriage is what leads to these events that are documented in chapter 18. A a meeting of two kings, uh, men who had been enemies, coming together for a feast to discuss the possibility of of joining forces for war. Now, the meeting was in Samaria, as we read, which was the capital of the northern kingdom. They wanted to discuss an attempt to regain control of Ramath Gilead. Not a territory we hear about all that often. a, A Jewish territory to the east which had fallen into the hands of the Arameans, the the Syrians. Now, Jehoshaphat, we could give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he he may have been truly interested in reuniting the kingdom. This might explain even the arranged marriage and his eager willingness to team up with Ahab for battle, a desire to pursue unity at any cost. However, in this case, he was pursuing unity with, with darkness, with a faithless people. And his willingness to go along is summarized in verse 3 when he says, I am as you are. We're the same ethnicity. And my people as your people. We will join you in the war. Now Jehoshaphat has allowed for his son to become unequally yoked in marriage. And now he has unequally yoked his kingdom to a godless leader. Yet as we will see, all this is still under God's divine plan. Now, after Jehoshaphat pledges his support, he immediately illustrates his trust in God's word, even his understanding of providence to a degree. So he suggests to Ahab that before they go out to battle, they should first seek the counsel of the Lord, though these two men have very different ideas of what that means. Ahab assembles his so-called prophets, 400 of them asking if he should go to war against Ramoth Gilead. And here we see that this godless man, Ahab, well, he has some religion, I suppose. But it's more like what the New Testament calls a, a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. The men that Ahab has to teach him are what the Apostle Paul calls ear ticklers. Men who preach only what the people want to hear. Now, all 400 of these phonies agree that Ahab should definitely go to war. And further, that God is going to bless the battle. Now, Jehoshaphat perceives what is going on here. And he makes an important theological distinction in verse 6, asking, Is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Is there even one faithful man to speak God's word in the northern kingdom?" Well, Ahab knows that there is indeed only one. Only one who will not just tickle his ears. There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. Well, Jehoshaphat immediately rebukes Ahab, saying the king should not say such a thing about the Lord's messenger, the prophet. And then faithful Micaiah is summoned. And while they wait, a a rather silly scene is described. The two kings there in their royal robes with 400 phony preachers prophesying before them. One of them called Zedekiah, son of Kenanah. He puts on a little melodrama with some iron horns that he has fashioned. Declaring that the joint forces will surely go and gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. And all the other prophets say the same thing. Attack and be victorious. And the Lord will give it into the king's hand. So here we have the political masquerading as the spiritual. The messenger is sent to go and get Micaiah. He, he tries to get the true prophet to tow the company line as well. To just tell Ahab what he wants to hear. After all, all of the 400 other prophets are in perfect agreement. Don't make it hard on yourself, Micaiah. Just tell him what he wants to hear. Speak favorably. But Micaiah is a man of integrity. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what my God says. He can only speak what the word says, no matter how uncomfortable it may be. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I not? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for they will be given into your hand. And if you didn't notice, I I tried to emphasize it in the reading, Micaiah's response is just dripping with a form of sarcasm that condemns all of the phony prophets and the ungodly there in the congregation at the threshing floor. And Ahab knows it too. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And then Micaiah begins to proclaim that word of the Lord. That because the northern kingdom is without prophets, without godly proclamation, without a pulpit. Verse 16, they will be scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master. Now Ahab is indignant, informing Jehoshaphat that he told him this prophet only makes him feel bad. But hear again the word of the Lord from verses 18 through 22. Micaiah continued. Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the multitudes of heaven standing on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, king of Israel, into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally, a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked, I will go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord, go and do it. So now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Now the word of the Lord had been silent on that side of the divided kingdom for years. And all of a sudden a sermon rings out loud and clear. And it is a doctrinal sermon. It is vast in its scope and implications. It is the doctrine of divine providence. It pertains to shepherdless sheep, to all of human endeavor, to the spirit world, to the reality of evil, and to the day, the appointed day, of everyone's death. The Lord, through Micaiah, gives us a window into Jehovah's throne room. Just think of that for a moment. God the Father is spirit. No one has seen God. But who is the visible impression of the invisible? Who is the Lord of Lords? Who has Micaiah seen? He has seen Jesus on the throne. So contrast that. Contrast the incarnate one, the visible one on the throne. Revealed to Micaiah briefly. To the thrones there at the threshing place. The earthly thrones. In Samaria that day. Where where false prophets were assembled for chit chat before two earthly kings. Fallen angels were coming to the holy God with their chit chat about the goings on on the earth. Much like Job chapter 1. Where Satan comes before the Lord after going to and fro on the earth. Seeking whom he might afflict. But... Requiring God's provident permission to even lift a finger. Micaiah declares of the Lord's superintendence even over enticement. This seemingly evil thing. The Lord is going to allow it in this case. To hand a wicked man over to himself. While still working out his perfect plan of redemption for the elect. What the Chronicler shows us here is that even the lying prophets were under the Lord's providence. The Lord allows the enticing spirit to go and and sow these enticing lies before a wicked king who really wanted to be lied to anyway. The Lord in heaven is sovereign over the deceiving spirits. He will use them to bring about his purposes of redemption for the elect and for his glory. Consider all of the enticement, all of the misinformation, all of the contradiction that we see in the world on the political stage. We see in politics prosperity preachers given access to the White House. What is Yahweh up to? We see the church clamoring in this day with its civil religion asserting its constitutional rights rather than its biblical imperatives. There is, of course, in our time, and there has always been a sifting. Remember that? As the Lord said to Peter, Satan has sought permission to sift you like wheat. But something was different about Peter. The Lord had prayed for him that he would strengthen the brothers. And we see it in in the preaching that goes on in certain spheres, the therapeutic preaching that that cheapens the gospel. We, We know that there are enticing spirits affecting the world. And the Lord has has permitted them to go out and deceive, to deceive the reprobate, to give them what they want. Self help psychology in so many spheres, cheap grace, man centered satisfaction. And so, the sort of thing which led to scattered sheep in Israel still leads to scattered sheep today. Unfed lambs, people who have been deceived. People without the master. It is enticement. It is is human pride and endeavor which leads people to say what is recorded in in James chapter 4. Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and and make a profit. But The Holy Spirit says you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Deo Valente, DV, the Lord willing. The biblical ethic of God's providence knows Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, yet its every decision is from the Lord. People may be clamoring about mail in ballots today, but their every decision, is from the Lord. He numbers the hairs on our heads as we are reminded from scripture and the confession. His eye is on the sparrow. And that puts me in kind of a strange position. I have a couple acres of blueberries and I sit on my porch with my pellet gun or my 410 and dispatch those little berry thieves. should think about that next time a sparrow or a barn swallow or a, or a robin Whichever smacks your windshield. God is provident over roadkill. Over pest control. And he is sovereign over the day of each of our deaths. Just as he was over Ahab's. The question is, and this is the question for the world. Will you die in the Lord, in Christ? Or will you die enticed by lies? Well, Ahab went out onto the battlefield, despite what the preacher had said. In fact, Ahab's minions even punched the truth teller in the face, foreshadowing the events of Jesus' torture. When is Matthew and Luke, record the false ones of the Sanhedrin, punched the sinless Savior, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So they cast Micaiah out, putting him in prison with meager rations, but his parting prophecy rang out. Mark my words, all you people. The alliance went up to Ramath Gilead. Ahab, believing he could defy the word of the Lord, put off his royal robes and disguised himself as an ordinary infantryman. Now here too we see the oddity of providence. Jehoshaphat seems like a fool, the saint often will, compared to Ahab's worldly cunning. He goes into battle dressed like a king, an easy mark for the enemy. The king of Aram had ordered his chariot commanders to try and engage the king directly. And indeed they did. Seeing the royal regalia of Jehoshaphat's attire, they targeted him. Verse 31. But Jehoshaphat cried out. And the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. For when the chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel, they stopped pursuing him. All through this story, all, all through this crescendo of drama, it appears as though Jehoshaphat has absolutely no business being where he is. From a common sensibility, he had no business entering his family into a political marriage with, with God's enemy. No business being at a feast with him. No business waging a war on Ahab's behalf. And certainly no business wearing royal robes onto the battlefield to make himself a target. Yet in spite of all that, the Lord heard his urgent plea for saving. He heard the prayers of the righteous man and he providentially intervened. Jehoshaphat, after all, was not the one of whom the Lord had foretold death that day. Jehoshaphat, though a very flawed man, earnestly sought the Lord throughout his whole life. It was Ahab who had no interest in scriptural rebuke. Ahab who appointed men pleasers to preach for him. But the word of the Lord never returns void. It accomplishes that which the Lord intends, Isaiah 55. It accomplishes the hardening or the softening of hearts. A theme in Romans 10 and 11. Ahab thought he could outsmart the Lord with his phony theology or by just casting out the real prophet. Outwit God's providence with allied military might, with state-of-the-art armor camouflaged underneath an ordinary soldier's clothing. Well, the text comes to its climax in verse 33 with what those not paying attention to the word and, and the providence of the Lord would just dismiss as a lucky shot. Someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the breastplate and the scale armor. A random shot from an anonymous Aramean archer fulfilled the word of the Lord. And wicked Ahab bled out on the field there at Rameth Gilead. Now I'd like to make two plain points that I think we can see in this narrative. First, the Lord's redemptive plan. And second, the importance of every believer submitting themselves to the reality of providence. The gospel of redemption, the reality of providence, and how we live our lives in knowledge of it. So first, redemptively. As I said before, what is Yahweh up to? Why is this even included in the chronicling of Israel? Well, God will accomplish His purposes. And the purpose of this event is directly related to His gospel. To the fulfillment of the first gospel prophecy that the seed of woman will crush the serpent's head. From the human perspective, Jehoshaphat, clothed in kingly robes, should have been the target of a skilled archer. But the Lord providentially spared him Keeping the Davidic line intact. To one day beget the Son of God. There is an intersection in this text here. We have the lineage of Christ in Jehoshaphat. And we even have seen Christ on the throne. There is Christology in this passage. The Lord is providentially working in this Davidic line. He's going to beget His own Son. On the earth, that son who would come and experience all of the sad drama of this life, yet never sin. And he who would face his own appointed day of dying. Now God in his providence will allow wicked people to wax worse and worse, as Paul wrote to Timothy. And he will exercise his divine providence in and through enticing evil even. Now wicked people think that their will is going to prevail. Their their calculus, their cunning, their gerrymandering. They think that they can just dispose of those things from the Lord which make them uncomfortable. Maybe they would just deem them non-essential. Ahab tried to get rid of the preacher Micaiah. Years later, Jehoshaphat's um, daughter in law, excuse me, Jehoshaphat's daughter in law, Ahab and Jezebel's daughter named Athalia, she usurped Jehoshaphat's throne. She attempted to kill off all of the Davidic line. That was her calculus. That would stump the tribe of Judah. Surely that would rout the Lord. Yet the Lord prevailed. How? Through a tiny remnant, a tiny remnant of faith that would last until David's relative, Jehoshaphat's relative, a teenage girl, was called upon to to give birth to the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And there is an application for today's saint as well. How is the saint going to respond to the mysterious events around us called God's providence? Especially when there seems to be so much evil, so much enticement, so much tragedy. And when the world is calling only the best events lucky. We need to know how to respond to to the tragic. We need to know how to respond to those situations which are precipitated by or exacerbated by Human meddling, foolish choices, foolish leaders as we see in the text. Jehoshaphat, once he came to the end of his wits, once he realized that he had gotten himself into quite a pickle, the foolish alliance with Ahab had led him to a battlefield on the Syrian frontier and he literally had a bullseye on his back. Looking so foolish according to the world that he cried out to God. The Lord intervened. The Lord spared him. Jehoshaphat was also learning about the Word of God. He was the one, after all, who suggested that they needed to inquire of the Word. And that Word, it came to pass, full of irony and mystery, by a randomly drawn bow. If you read on, perhaps this afternoon, to 2 Chronicles chapter 19, You would read that immediately upon Jehoshaphat's return to Jerusalem, Oh, the Lord sent another prophet, Jehu, to rebuke the king for all of his folly. Jehoshaphat repented. He began to bring reformation to the people of Judah. He reinstated the Levites to the true teachers of Israel, to instruct in the law and to judge. Then by chapter 20, another tragedy befalls the the faithful remnant in Judah. The Lord allowed raiders from En to attack. But how did Jehoshaphat respond that time? He called for prayer and fasting. And he himself humbly became the worship leader of the people of Judah, leading them in corporate worship. Worship was the solution for that tragic political situation. And the Lord again, miraculously, preserved Judah from en and prospered them. You see, Jehoshaphat had come to know the God of providence who works in these mysterious ways and he was growing in his trust of Him and his honor of God's Word. He had to come to a place of real self-examination. He had to examine himself in, in the light of the Word that Jehu brought. He had to examine the, the fortuitous events of his foolish alliance with Ahab in the light of the word that Micaiah had brought. You see, the saint, young or old, looks out over the span of his or her life, looks out over the span of history, God's redemptive history in particular, and recognizes that the Lord on high is providentially orchestrating every word that is uttered and every event that befalls. we have seen wicked men believe that they can alter events and make things perhaps more comfortable according to their own human judgment. The greatest example of this, of course, are the events that befell our Lord. The events of his passion, did they not seem so wretched and dark for those who were witnesses? As his followers, his own brothers, his mother watched him die in agony and she would not be comforted? Meanwhile, the leaders of the Sanhedrin are rejoicing, believing that they have triumphed. The demons in the pit of hell are rejoicing, believing that they have triumphed. But God's word and his promise and his providence endureth still. After the resurrection, the Sanhedrin bought off the Roman guards who were at the tomb. An early case of fake news. They spread the lie that the disciples had stolen Christ's body a lie that persists among many Jews to this day. Throughout the early church, they they were regularly beating the apostles. Martyrs were made. Yet the word of the Lord continued to ring out. And the martyr's blood was the seed for the gospel. And it's a gospel of hope that providence prevails even over seemingly wicked events and people. Which, of course, continues in our very own strange times. Each of us has endured myriad trials and confusions, I'm sure. Yet the doctrine of God's wise providence courses throughout the whole of the Scriptures, granting us grace. Grace was in His perfect and provident plan. Knowledge of His gospel. Comfort and hope for the church, for the remnant. There are divisions, there are wars, there are pompous leaders, there are politicians invoking the spiritual, and so-called spiritual leaders invoking the political. But what did Christ reveal through Micaiah on that day? That Christ is on his throne. Christ is on his throne, dispatching the angels, both the fallen and the holy, And sending out his word through strange utterances and and humble, silly-seeming people even. People like us, who are laughed at and foolish in the eyes of the world, yet are entrusted with the gospel of grace. That men and women and boys and girls might humble themselves at God's might. Might repent from their foolish ways, their sinful ways, for that is how we are saved from this knowledge and from repentance and from the incredible awe that God in heaven is graciously caring for us and orchestrating all of our events. Take hope, Christian. Amen. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you and praise you for this marvelous glimpse into your heavens and into your ways. Lord, forgive us for so much of our pompous attitudes, our doubt, our simplicity. Lord, forbid it that we might be enticed by wicked spirits. Give us discernment to recognize. We thank you for the holy angels which are ministering to the elect, perhaps even here today. But most of all, we thank you for your Son, the King of kings, the ruler, he who sits on the throne and is visible, and intercedes for us always perfect mediator, our guide, our protector, our friend, our brother, our suffering Savior. Lord, we thank you for your word, for your gospel, for your messengers, for the way you convert us. We pray for those who are yet unconverted, Lord. We pray that they would see, first in your marvelous creation, meteors crisscrossing the sky at night. A 90 degree day, yet with a rich dew. How providently you care. And that they would know, O God, and seek you out. And find your special revelation that is found only in Christ and in his word. And repent of our foolishness, Lord, and that they too would be saved. We thank you, O God. Make this confession sure. For your glory. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing number 98 in our hymnals.